Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Palbox. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back. It is my great privilege and honor today to introduce my special guest, Kyle Kaiser, CEO of RX Review. Kyle, it's so good of you to set aside the time, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let's start with this. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came about starting RX Review, and you know what has your journey been over the last few years? Sure. Yeah. I, um, well, so I, I come from a sort of employee benefits background primarily. I, I grew up in that industry and to the point that, you know, my family's business was an employee benefits brokerage and consultancy. And when I got in trouble as a kid, then I would come home from school and have to stuff enrollment packets. It's sort of that sort of beginning. So, you know, I was, I was always in sort of a payer oriented side of the business and over time, looked at that world and just didn't really necessarily see the opportunities to impact the system in the ways that I wanted to. You think about the options that are out there for brokers and consultants to solve employers for solve problems for employers. It's really just pass the cost along to the employer and then ultimately pass the cost along to the patient, you know, just sort of try and distribute the out of control spending as best you can. And I uh, just wanted to be a part of trying to actually impact the cost curve and not necessarily just work within the system as it already existed, but try and find a way to work in a different way. And uh, RX Review focuses specifically on the pharmacy benefits side of employee benefits, as, as you refer to. So what is the main value proposition here? And who are your main customers? Do you serve health plans, providers, employers? Can you talk us through that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's a version of all of those in some way or another. We've built a data network that connects to the point of decisions. So what I mean by that is when providers are ordering care, that might be a prescription or something else, we connect to the systems they use to make those orders. And we, what we bring into their consideration is real-time, patient-specific, moment-in-time specific pricing information. So the way we accomplish that is that we connect to a network of payers and PBMs who provide that data to us. We then connect to the electronic health record systems or the provider organizations and, and are able to inform that moment of decision with that new cost value. This sounds like a technology-heavy business and a data-intensive business. So you're really, at the core of it, you are making these real-time connections between different data sources and uh, potentially surfacing opportunities for uh, reduced costs uh, for maybe alternates to medications, combination of the above. Am I right? Yes, that's right. So what, what we provide in workflow is the, uh, price information, any formulary restrictions that may exist. So prior authorization, quantity limit, a step therapy, those sorts of things. And then alternative choices. So those alternatives are low, lower cost options, and they come in two forms. One's a different drug or one's a different pharmacy. So the goal there is to help a prescriber, for example, when, when making a prescribing decision, 
consider some other options that might be lower out-of-pocket costs for the patient and, and uh, either by switching drugs to something that's more in relationship with the rules on that patient's formulary or to a pharmacy that would be a lower price point based compared to the patient's preferred pharmacy. So when we talk about the PBM space, it's a fairly concentrated space. And there's a handful of players and the number has been shrinking over the years. True. But now we are seeing the emergence of a new category of startups, companies like yourself, that are trying to approach this in a somewhat different way. What's changed? What's the differentiator from your perspective for your company? Well, from our PBMs are customers of ours, right? I, I think that what, what we're saying is, regardless of who's managing the pharmacy benefit, we want to make sure we're taking the stakeholders that are working on behalf of the risk-bearing entity and connect them with those who are making care decisions. That's, that's the focus and the difference about what we're trying to accomplish broadly around PBM consolidation and sort of the model itself, there's certainly changes ahead for that world. And I think the fact that there are many of them are being absorbed into the bigger healthcare conglomerates is sort of a suggestion that the PBM model is changing into something that's more holistic and more focused on managing patients, not just around pharmacy benefits specifically, but managing the total cost of care with pharmacy benefits as a tool to do that. And bending the cost curve in general is going to require a lot of tools in care management and benefit management and, and really driving different behaviors on the front and back end of that clinical decision. And pharmacy benefits are a component of that, but not necessarily the whole story. And I think the, the consolidation in the market's evidence that that's true. Now, you mentioned that PBMs are also your customers. I imagine so are health plans and potentially providers as well, especially yeah. those who are working in a cabinet model, very motivated, I imagine to look at any solution that can lower the costs of drugs. And then there are other related uh, services, related medication adherence, for instance, that your company offers as well, which is again, a whole different space where there's a whole competitive landscape that is emerging, technology enabled, digital health kind of companies. So my first question on that is, if PBMs are your customers and you're also serving health plans and employers directly, do they feel a threat of disintermediation in any way? Is it a, is it, or is it a case of, I compete with you, but I also collaborate with you? Help us understand that. Between our customer base, you mean? Yeah, Sorry. between your customer base. You mentioned PBMs are your customers, but uh, I imagine health plans are also your customers, right? That's true, yeah. We work with PBMs, health plans, in many cases, those are the same entity as we sort of just yeah. highlighted in the last conversation. And, and health systems themselves are customers of ours. I think the, the thing that's true is that, you know, we've built a network, right? And that, that network has different functionality based on which problem we're trying to solve. So in some cases, that's simply saying, here's how much it costs and here are some lower cost choices. In some cases, it's saying, based on what we know about you, here are some sites, some pharmacies that might be better options for you. An example of that is we work with health systems to make sure where there's opportunities for them to fill those medications, that we're, we're maximizing those opportunities because more integrated care is going to drive a better outcome, right? If we can send a patient downstairs to fill the prescription, we can make them more adherent. As a result of that, we can empower the provider encounter in a different way. That's valuable. So we're kind of in a position because we are focused so intensely on the provider ordering as the point of intervention that a lot of those conflicts resolve in that, you know, the health plan and the PBM are rarely that much in conflict on the preferences, right? They're 
PBM is working on behalf of the health plan to manage risk and they want to enforce the form. Both of them are incentivized to enforce the formulary. Both of them are incentivized to find the lowest cost pharmacy, as is the health system where they're bearing risk, where they're interested increasingly about adherence, where they're, where they're interested around, you know, managing a better patient experience. So we, we look for those opportunities where there's alignment from those stakeholders to try and drive a different outcome because ultimately finding that path of least resistance is how we make a bigger impact on the system. Can you give us an example of how you, your company makes an impact, either by picking a therapeutic category of some kind or picking a client of some kind? Yeah, give us an example of where, maybe some numbers as well. What kind of savings are we talking about here by using the tool and getting real-time information? Let's talk about behavior change specifically, because that's ultimately what where value is derived. So we're, you know, we're doing, uh, we're approaching 5 million transactions a month now that we're processing through the tool that represents about $3 billion in annual prescription spend on the pharmacy side of the world. And ultimately those are exciting top of the funnel numbers. What it, what it really comes down to is how do you convert that into a different behavior at the point of prescribing that results in a lower cost option for the patient actually being fulfilled. We did a side-by-side -side comparison for to win some business in Florida. When competing with this other company in this scenario, we were delivering six times the behavior change as the sort of standard solution. That really comes down to a few things. Is one, we're returning transactions at a rate of about 95%. That means that successfully, out of a, all the opportunities we have to price medications, we're pricing successfully and returning a value that's relevant 95% of the time. That's about 15% higher than the rest of the industry. And in that 15% are the really complex meds. It's not that hard to, to price the medications and the capsules. What's challenging is pricing the sort of non-standard forms, creams, inhalers, self-injectables, those things that don't sort of fit neatly into those other types of drug forms. And so what I can attribute the behavior change to is we're working really hard to make sure that the most valuable encounters are pricing successfully so that we can surface the lower cost alternatives in those scenarios because those are the most relevant opportunities to make an impact on the patient's outcome. Those are the ones that are going to be the most relevant for the provider. And so it's a more positive experience. It's a more valuable experience for the user, the provider in this case. And ultimately, that's going to deliver the most value to our customer our paying customers in those scenarios, which are the payers of PBMs. Our, our goal is to create a relevant value for every provider that tries to use the tool. Let's make this thing work every time. In the early days of these, this type of technology, providers really love this data and love this information and love incorporating it into their decision-making process. It just wasn't working very consistently because there were only so many payers and PBMs that were capable of doing this. That's changed over time. And then we've built intelligence layers on top of it to make sure that it works at an even higher rate. And ultimately that trust in the tool is what's driving more behavior change. So that's sort of the way we think about success is how do we ultimately convert these things into different behaviors at the point of care and a different outcome for the patient. That's very interesting. So the way you keep score is really through behavior change and uh, which means really having the provider come back and look at the tool and look at the recommendations of the tool and taking action on the recommendations of the tool. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Again, I go back to what we talked about a little earlier on, which is that this 
this entire platform is built on the premise of real-time data aggregation and intelligence on top of it to deliver recommendations, alternates at the point of care. Is that right? Is that a fair way of describing it? Uh, yeah, the only, only change is less aggregation and more connectivity. Insurance pricing and healthcare pricing is so dynamic and so variable based on location, insurance, coverage phase, all of those inputs, that the aggregation opportunities are less valuable than the real-time connectivity opportunities. So it's our ability to transact in real-time based on what's happening this second. And you know your price at your pharmacy or your price at your health system or your price at this clinic today based on what's you know, where you are in your insurance plan. That's that's the type of insight that you have to be able to deliver for this tool to be valuable. And what's the biggest challenge you encounter while you're trying to do this uh, real-time dynamic integration of the data? Is it the technology? Is it uh, resistance from those who have the data? What's the biggest challenge you face? This is changing, but I think one of the biggest challenges is convincing providers that it's real. I think the providers have been on the receiving end of some unmet expectations for too long with these types of tools. And those come in for two reasons. One, it was because the data exchange was not real time and happening through flat files and things that just caused it to be inaccurate, not a date. Providers just stopped paying attention, stopped trusting it, stopped looking at it. And then the second reason is in an attempt to capture the market before the technology was really there. There was a lot of things that were misrepresented as real-time patient-specific, moment-in-time-specific pricing as sort of price transparency tools that just weren't. And so in both of those cases, it eroded, eroded provider trust in those types of tools, which means that ultimately they start to ignore them. So one of our biggest hills to climb early on was just convincing the providers that this is different, this is reliable, this is something that you can have a different expectation around. And we've overcome that today and, and largely because we've partnered really closely with provider organizations like UC Health, like Presbyterian New Mexico, like Providence in the Northwest, to listen to providers, understand what it is they're trying to solve, understand the problems they have with the tools and, some, and why it's valuable. And it helped us evolve our pipeline and helped us uh, better our communicate the value of the tools that we have. And you mentioned Providence, and they're also investors in your company. Am I right? They are, yeah. Yep. And uh, let's switch topics here a little bit and talk about the overall digital health landscape. You're one of the emerging digital health companies. You've raised a Series B round. And you've demonstrated some success. And there's a lot of digital health companies out there developing innovative solutions that are making a difference that can make a difference and are making a difference. The flip side to that is that when I talk to healthcare executives, especially on provider organizations, they're a little confused about how to really make sense of all of the solutions out there in the market, how to really evaluate and assess the companies that are emerging. There's so much venture capital money that's going into these companies. They're struggling a little bit. So if you were a healthcare executive today, and not specifically speaking in terms of your company or your product, but for a range of competing solutions from companies that are relatively young, but who are being funded with large amounts of venture capital money, how do you advise them to go about assessing these partnerships? Gosh, I, I feel like the answer to that question is going to be really variable based on the type of company. 
as a sort of general broad swath, scale matters, right? So the, you know, we, we experienced early on and we've overcome that issue because in a lot of cases, the functionality only matters if the right end user is engaging with that functionality. This, that's true if you're talking about providers or members or uh, anything in between is that you've got to have the tools in the hands of the right users to drive an impact. And that's hard to do in healthcare, especially when you're talking about provider tools and point of care tools and care team tools, just because it's a, you know, it's a challenging B2B sales cycle to overcome. So no matter how compelling the idea is, if it doesn't have scale, that scale isn't engaging with the users that matter most to you, it's not likely that it's going to produce that great of an outcome. So why we spend a lot of time talking about how we're now, you know, reaching 300,000 providers and performing these 5 million transactions a month, because that's a, that's an opportunity for us to drive value at a much greater scale than we could have in early days. So, you know, I think that's probably the first one. And then, you know, I don't think that's necessarily correlated with venture capital in the door uh, yeah. in all cases, right? We've, we've tried to be really judicious about how much and when and from who we pursue those types of investments and, and ultimately decided that, that finding strategic partners that could help us drive value through who they are, what they do, or what they know was, was most important. And that led us down a health system path. So we, we really primarily focused on provider systems and healthcare systems as, as strategic investors with a couple of notable exceptions and, and find a lot of value from the folks we have around the table in lots of ways. But ultimately for us being very provider centric and understanding the challenges they face and understanding how we can help them overcome those challenges was really important. And having a wet lab where we could sort of test and iterate on those things was really important. So I guess all that to say is the venture capital dollars generically, well, they're the lifeblood of a bunch of this industry. You know, our, our perspective on that was just to make sure we're finding the right types of investors that can add, add some really specific and tactical value to our, our approach. What about the EHR vendors? Now, one of the things that we hear when we talk to our healthcare clients is that, you know, they like single interfaces for all of the technology tools. And that often means uh, getting into the workflow in some way, you know, the clinical workflow. Is that much of a consideration for your kind of a solution? Is yours a standalone solution? Is it something that can be launched from inside of an EHR? Can you comment on that? Sure, yeah, we are an embedded component of EMRs. We are, we're the data network that powers the price transparency features in Epic, Cerner, and Athena. We see a lot of value in those partnerships and, and ultimately they've, they've helped us drive scale in a really significant way. And frankly, have a, a lot of good and important input on the right ways to design these solutions because they've been serving those users for a long time. Like it or not, they're the some of the best chances we have at platform companies in healthcare, some of those organizations, right? We want to be in those workflows ultimately because that's how you drive provider adoption and engagement. It's just the minute you ask providers to do anything but their standard workflow, the less likely you are to actually be able to deliver something of value. Yeah. You mentioned uh, scale is very important and a lot of digital health companies today are operating at subscale. Some are choosing to merge with one another. Others are choosing to get acquired by some of the larger companies. We're still early in the digital transformation of healthcare. 
So one could make an argument that we're in early stages. A lot of these companies will go through some kind of an evolution. But do you think there's also the prospect of a shakeout when some of these companies don't reach scale? Yeah, absolutely. I entirely agree with that. That's part of the the thrill and risk associated with entrepreneurship, right? Is not everything's going to succeed. And frankly, the vast majority of things aren't going to succeed. And that's just a reality of, of any market you enter. Yeah. So as a closing comment, if you had a couple of pieces of advice for digital health startups or their VC firms who are kind of coming up with an innovative new solution, want to get into the market today, what uh, what would you advise them to do? Let's say specifically for those who are already in the game, what are the one or two big themes that you think are important for 2022? I mean, if, if we were starting from a cold start today, I would do a lot of the same things we've done, which is just be entirely obsessive about the incentives that exist and understand where value accrues. Because once you understand where value accrues, you can understand where your customer is. You know, in our case, that was initially prescribing behavior, but the value accrued to the payers and PBMs because they were looking to reduce their cost of goods by driving lower cost choices. The sort of natural inclination for us would have been to sell directly to providers because you, you know, you want to engage those providers and get those users and then you want to monetize that effort. Well, you know, in our case, it was a multi-sided network opportunity because the the incentives were not aligned necessarily in that case. Even where providers bear risk, it just wasn't to a significant enough scale or didn't include pharmacy benefits. So I think it's be obsessed with the incentives in the healthcare value chain, because while they look chaotic from the outside at times, these are very rational decisions being made based on the incentives that are in front of one entity or another. And if you can understand those well enough, you can build a business model within it. Yeah. Follow the money, in other words. More or less. Thanks so much, Kai. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. All the very best to you and to Arx Review, and uh, we'll be following you and uh, hope you have a successful 2022. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox.